people. Razor come upon his head. This is a Nazarite vow that is much like the vow of Samson that is going to be made for the child Samuel. And this is her prayer in the temple when she is praying for God to do a work in her life. And the Bible says something very interesting. This is much like the gall of bitterness that is mentioned in the book of Acts when it's referring to Simon who tries to buy the Holy Ghost, the gall of bitterness or the bitterness of soul. And so for a few moments here this morning, I want to preach on the bitterness of soul. Praise God. What is going on there? What is happening in Hannah's life that would produce bitterness of soul? This would be like a prolonged, multifaceted experience that produces bitterness of soul. Not, not just bitterness, but like an inward bitterness. Like when somebody says the heart of hearts, they're talking about the innermost emotions that are connected to a situation. And Hannah has experienced prolonged, multifaceted bitterness of soul that is uh, provoking to her, that is not acceptable to her. And so she finds herself in the house of the Lord praying about it. What a, what a great place to be if that's how you're going to deal with bitterness of soul. So let's talk about that for a few moments this morning. Lord, we love you and thank you for your goodness and your greatness. We ask that your word would be a strength to us and encouragement to us in the house of God. We give to you thanks and we worship you. We ask all these things in your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. You can be seated just for a, a better context of what has produced what Hannah is feeling in life. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse number 1 gives to us that background that we pick up this morning in verse number 9. The Bible says that there was a certain man of Mount Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, and he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the other one was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And the man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Shiloh is in that moment and time frame and history of Israel where they have entered into the promised land. They have crossed over and in, and they have established what tribe is taking up what geographical location. And so while they're doing this, there is a temporary tabernacle that is placed in Shiloh. They've had a tabernacle that was movable when they were traveling out of Egypt, and it would go with them wherever the Lord moved them. It was temporary. They would place it, and then they would move on. But now that they are in the land, and there is a need to separate the promised land based on the 12 tribes of Israel, there still needs to be a place of worship. And so that temporary tabernacle was placed in Shiloh. So every year, they would travel to worship and to sacrifice. This, this, this is a major change and a shift in the way of their life because the tabernacle has always been in the center of their travels and their community and their culture. It's different now because it is not central to everything that they are doing. And this becomes one of the problems later in their history because they have to travel to the tabernacle. They have to make an effort, a journey to get there instead of it being right in the middle of them. And when the northern tribes split off from the southern tribes, the northern tribes end up creating high places of worship and telling the people it's not necessary to make the sacrifice to make the trip to Jerusalem, we can worship here at these high places. The problem with that is the high places were not true worship. It was false worship, 
And just because it is a sacrifice does not mean that you take second and secondary worship and you take that as in lieu of true worship. Praise God. I don't know what sacrifices you had to make to get here this morning. Maybe it's just the sacrifice of self that says we're going to get to the house of God. But whatever you did to get to the house of God today, it was a worthy sacrifice. Praise God. It was worth getting here to the house of God. Amen. Some of you live in different parts of the city. And so for some, it might have been a five-minute drive, and some live way out in the southwest. It might have been a 30-minute drive, 30-minute drive for Brother Nate Reese to get to the house of God. It's worth taking the time and effort to get to the house of God, no matter how near or how far you are. Praise God. Hallelujah. This became an Achilles heel because they were having to travel. It was foreign to their, their way of life. And so this man by the name of Elkanah would take his wives and sons and they would travel to Shiloh to worship. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters portions. But unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary, this is obvious, it's not named, but it's obvious that her adversary is Penina, provoked her sword for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And he, as he did so year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. So this was a, this was a constant, this was a prolonged, prolonged, multifaceted experience that was so discouraging that it placed Hannah in the bitterness of soul. It was not something that was just random. It wasn't just something that was a one-time thing, but it was a long-term provocation that was multifaceted, that went right to the core of what bitterness can be. The scripture said a root of bitterness springing up can destroy an individual. And in Hannah's life, there was a prolonged, multifaceted bitterness of soul. I want to say something to you by way of introduction here in the house of God today. Praise God. You have to actively activate some things in your spirit and life to ward off the bitterness of soul. There are going to be things in your life that you are not going to like. Life is not fair. And the people in life are more unfair. And so people are going to say things to you. There are going to be life experiences that you never asked for. They're going to be in your life. But I'm here to tell you today, praise God, if you get something in your spirit and in your attitude that says, I refuse to allow a root of bitterness to spring up in my life, I'm going to cut it down. And the way I'm going to cut it down is by being in the house of the Lord. I'm going to be here and worship is going to help me. And the word of God is going to help me. I'm actively going to have to fight against it, but it's worth fighting for. Praise God. I said it's worth fighting for. Bitterness will tear you up. Bitterness will drag you down. Bitterness will oppress you. Bitterness will paralyze you. There is nothing like freedom and liberty in the house of the Lord. And the scripture said, now where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You need the Holy Ghost in your life operating so that bitterness can't come in and try to control you. Praise God. Let's clap our hands and thank the Lord that is spirit is at work in our life. 
This was a constant provocation in her life. And Hannah felt like she was in bitterness of soul. Life had not been fair to her. I've heard this. Uh, you do ministry for, for too long. It's not going to be very long until you hear words like, it's just not fair. Well, I wish I had an answer for that. But I don't have an answer for that because life is not fair. I mean, let's just dispense with that idea right now, okay? Life is not fair. Get over it and move on. Because if you're, if you're trying to figure out justification for what makes life fair, you're going to live an entire life anxious, depressed, and stressed out. Say, well, that, that's harsh. I, I'm sorry this morning. I just I feel a harsh spirit. Get over it because life is not fair. It's not going to be fair. doesn't work that way. doesn't work that way. And life didn't seem to be fair with Hannah. So she struggled with this. This was a prolonged, multifaceted provocation by somebody that should have been supportive. But because there was competition, let's talk about that for a minute too. The worst thing that you can do in your life is to compete with somebody else. And half the time you're competing with somebody that doesn't even care about you. This is what is driving a social media age. This is why suicides are skyrocketing. They have pinpointed that it is it's skyrocket, skyrocketing ever since the advent of social media where people are posting stuff. Half the time that is not true, it's a facade, it's an illusion, it is not reality. There's a fear of missing out. My life is not as good as somebody else's. I'm comparing my life with other people. And so this comparative analysis causes stress and anxiety. And hear me, the people that are really damaged by it are our children and young people. You say, well, what do we do? Well, if you're a parent, you need to control that. Because there is nothing more poisonous into their spirit than, than what social media has been. And it's not just coming from... It's not just coming from the church, it's coming from a secular world and psychologists and family therapists and medical professionals that are trying to figure out what in the world is going on. It's because we're living in an age of competition. How, how about we live in, a, in a, a reality? How about we live in the real world where life is difficult? That, the, the whole corpus of scripture, life is difficult, it's not fair, but there are people that have arisen out of ashes and have said, I'm going to pursue the call of God in in my life and nothing is going to stop me from that destiny and that purpose and because I've got purpose I've got meaning in my life and because I've got meaning in my life I believe in a destiny God is taking me somewhere I'm not just wandering around in a cruel despicable world but I've got purpose in my life I'm not comparing myself I'm not the person that should have been supportive of her, I mean, was in competition with her. This is a real thing. I mean, this, is, this morning here, this is a real talk with Pastor Bradford. <laughs> competition. It's in every, every area and every avenue. Some people hang on to it so tight-fisted. They don't want to give it up. They want to be in complete control. You're going to live a miserable life if you try to control everything. Well, praise God. Nobody's running the aisles here this morning, but 
Some of the most miserable people in the world are people that try to control everything. That's God's job. That's his business, not my business. There's some things I don't have any control over. I'm going to do my best to do what I think is right, follow the scripture, follow the word, let the Holy Ghost direct me, but I can't control every iota of what happens in life. That is God's business. My business is to say, God, I have faith in you, and I believe that you're taking me somewhere. I may not understand it. It's not within my grasp and in my control, but I know that you're a sovereign God, and you've got control of everything, and so ultimately... I'm trusting you. Amen. Praise God. You'll run yourself ragged trying to control everything. And so here she is in this competitive life with somebody that should have been supportive of her condition that she was barren and not having children and used that opportunity when she had reaped blessings. She had, the scripture says here that she had sons and daughters. And yet she, she couldn't rest in, what do they say? The blessing of God. She couldn't rest in the blessing of God. She had to provoke somebody that had less. That became her focus, is, is focusing on the competitive nature in her jealous and envious spirit than recognizing the blessing of God and letting the blessing of God flow to somebody that had less. Praise God. And so this was, this was a prolonged, multifaceted provocation that produced bitterness of soul. Can, can we just agree here in the house of God that let's not be envious and, and jealous of each other? You know, <clears throat> some people have, have, have at times, you know, they say stuff. And, and it's their opinion, and that's okay. But there have been moments where people have, have made little snide remarks and comments about ministry and what have you. And one of the charges that they have thrown out there is the charge of delegation. He likes to delegate. Well, if, if I'm doing everything, I, I, I would run myself into the ground. If I'm speaking everything, doing everything, pulling all the levers and trying to control everything, I, am, I, I, I would not make it. I'll be burnt out, and you'd have to put me on a sabbatical somewhere for six months because there is no way possible you can do all that needs to be done in a church. So delegation is saying to somebody else, listen, you have the ability, the talent to do what God has called you to do. Now go and run with it and do it. And then you start perpetuating that pretty soon. you got a lot of people in a church that rise up and Instinctively, that understand leadership. That doesn't happen when somebody's trying to control everything, all the minutiae, every little thing. Praise God. If somebody can preach better than I can preach, I'm not going to get upset with that. Turn them off somewhere, put them somewhere because I don't want them in the pulpit because somehow it's a reflection on me. No, I want God to elevate them, use them. I believe there are young men in this church that can be powerful preachers. And so I want to give them the opportunity to step into a pulpit and say, God, am I really called? Can I do this? Praise God, this is not a game where you look at everybody's failures and we say, well, we're going to discriminate against you and you and you and you, and I'm the only one that can be the one that's an example and a paragon of virtue and truth. Forget about that kind of stuff. We're all in this battle together. Nobody is perfect, and yet God has called you to great things. It's time to rise up and say, I've got a place in the kingdom of God. I've got a work to do in the kingdom of God. I refuse to let bitterness control me. Praise God, praise God. And so 
person that was supposed to, <laughs> the person that was supposed to be uplifting and encouraging and a strength became a source of contention and provocation that drove Hannah year after year to the point where she was so in despair and she was in the throes of bitterness. She was in bitterness of soul. Life hadn't been fair and every day painful irritants reminded her every single day there was a complaint and there was a provocation. And so here she is and children during ancient times, this was, this was very, very important. They were the symbols of fulfillment. This was mainly their, their existence was how to impact culture by going into the earth and subduing it and populating it. From the very beginning, this was a direction that God had, had given. And so this was ingrained in their psyche that this was something that was important. And for people that cannot have children, this is, this is, this is something that is important to them. It is a difficult thing. And, and then you have all the people that are trying to do their very best to be helpful. And then they ask questions, why haven't you started having children? And then you've got to answer that. It's not because we haven't tried. We're trying. It's just not working. And then they have to go with all, in, in modern senses, they, they make physicians visits and try to do all kinds of things to try to figure. This, this is very, very difficult in the spirit of an individual. In ancient times and in modern times. And it's interesting because there are some people, they don't want to have children. And they don't even like you asking them because they say, well, why, why do you even ask that? Why should I even, I mean, is that just something that's expected of me? They're going against the grain of generations and generations and generations. And I fully respect that position if, if a couple says we don't want to have children. We'd rather have dogs or chickens or that's perfectly fine. And so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll note that. I've asked people that, and they became very, very, uh, one of my good friends, I asked him that question. He says, why do you even ask that question? What if we don't want to have children? Okay, that's great. I won't ask that question ever again with you. But to be fair, <laughs> there's generations and generations and generations on top of generations where this is significant. And so when there is a situation where a couple cannot have children, it, it's even in modern times, it becomes something that is difficult to deal with. In ancient times, it was exacerbated beyond what we may feel like in modern times because in modern times, we are limiting the amount of children and in some places they restrict what you can do, places like China and other countries of the world. And so it's, it's not ancient times, but in ancient times, this was an expectation this was built into the fabric of society that, that you would marry and then you would produce offspring and that was the blessing of God. And so Hannah is trying to deal with this when she is barren and, and, and she had no fulfillment in her life. And so these symbols of fulfillment were gone. She was childlessness. And she had a double burden because not only was she dealing with the internal ramifications of that, but her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. You know, sometimes you, you know more than anybody else what your struggle is and what your battle is. You, you don't need anybody else to tell you what you're going through and what your difficulties are. You know that because you know your own weakness. And yet the enemy will come 
and get in your ear and provoke you and tell you what you already know. And so it's a double compounding of something that you already know. Praise God. Sometimes it's good to say to the devil, you know what? I already know that, you accuser of the brethren. Get thee behind me, Satan. i got to struggle with this. I'm going to make it through this, but I don't need you talking in my ear. What I need is the voice of God speaking to me, telling me, you know what, you can make it, you can do it, you can be more than a conqueror. Through my spirit and my strength that is walking with you. So she was in the bitterness of soul because there was a constant provocation. So she prayed this prayer that we read in our text. In bitterness of soul, she prayed if thou wilt indeed look upon the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall be no razor come upon his head. What, what is significant about this is Hannah took the bitterness of soul to the house of God. Praise God. She took it to, she took it to Shiloh in a tabernacle. There was no temple. It was, there was, it was still a very temporary structure, but they made that journey every year, and she brought it to the house of God. She brought her troubles. She brought her heartache. She brought it to the house of God. When other people might have turned to friends and family and other people, she brought it to the house of God. Amen. There was, there was no place else to go for her except for the house of God. I'm preaching to you this morning that some of the, be, some of the most difficult circumstances in your life, the best place to take them is in the house of God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Not, not just in service times, but I've been in my office working and I've heard the prayers of somebody that have brought their circumstances to the house of God. And I've stopped what I'm doing because I feel, I feel an upsurge of God's anointing and his presence because somebody said, you know what? I'm taking time out today. I'm going to the house of God. I'm going to lay that on an altar somewhere and I'm going to walk out of here with a load that is lifted. I'm not carrying it anymore. Listen to me. Sometimes you need to find a place of prayer and lay it before the Lord and say, this is too heavy. I'm bringing my problem to you. There are tragic, tragic effects of bitterness of soul. Two, two major ones. Number one, it colored her whole outlook on life. Everything she thought about was the fact that she was childless. The Bible says that she was bitter, bitter of soul. She wept often. It also says that she wouldn't eat. She was downhearted. And in her prayer to God, she spoke of her condition as misery. <laughs> downhearted. She's miserable. She's not eating. Sometimes when we are so burdened, we're unable to experience the simple joys in our life that enrich us. And so our, it colors everything. Every, 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 everything we see is through the lens of our own suffering and our, our bitterness of soul. And so we, we can't grasp even just the simple things in life that bring to us joy. And so this was one of the tragic effects of Hannah's despair is because her despair became the rose-colored glasses she was looking out and seeing the rest of life in. Amen. And that's all she could see. And, so, and this, is, this is what happens with the person that gets, they fixate on they fix it, fixate on it, and they, they, can't, they can't, can't, can't get off of that. They can't recognize there's other blessings in life. This, this is one thing you're going to have problems with and struggle with, and, and, and it's always going to be there. But look at all these other things that are a blessing. And if you focus on just this, you don't, you don't get those joys that give 
that give balance and stasis to your life. And so now your life is unbalanced because it's only looking at, at, at bitterness. I've known people, there have been people in my family, that everything is colored by, everything is colored by, finances colored by something. Jobs colored by something. Houses colored by something. Parenting colored by It's an event that goes back, and there's a fixation on the event that colors everything. And it not only covers, this is the tragic effect of bitterness. It not only covers their expectation and what they see, but it bleeds out to the next generation and the next generation. Just recently, this last week, sitting across from somebody in a restaurant, looked over, didn't even recognize them. And they said something to, to me, and, and then we had a conversation. That, that experience was a reflection that that is a generational thing that goes all the way back to the way somebody views tragedy and views things that were unfair in life and it became a fixation in their life and it, it went from them to their children to their grandchildren. You better get control of bitterness. You better, you better cut it off, drive it underneath, fight against it with everything that you've got because if you don't, it's going to make its way to generations behind you. Is that what you want? You don't want that. What you want is blessing. What you want is the favor of God to be upon your children and your children's children. Yeah, it's a sore spot, but I'm going to deal with that myself. Fight against that with myself because I don't want it coloring generations behind me. God. I'm talking about disappointments as well. It's not just circumstances. It can be disappointment. Things that you had in your mind that never measured up to that. And so you're disappointed and you're frustrated. And, and so this, this becomes a, an outlook. It becomes a mentality. This is one of the tragic effects of bitterness. Man, I, this is so good. Tragic, tragic, tragic. And every single one of us in this building have, have, have seen tragedy and tragedy that would be best not even to be spoken of. Still going to be there. Can't go back and whitewash some things. Can't change what was said. You can't change what was done. Can't change the perception of other people. <laughs> Just, you can't. But are you going to let that change you to the point where that's all you fixate on see? Or are you going to say, you know what? Thank God that was in the past. I'm moving on, moving forward. The devil's going to do his very best to remind me at every turn. I'm not going to let that dictate and control to me. My life is not going to be colored by that. So that, that was one of the tragic effects. The other one was her depression was so great that she couldn't even recognize the evidences of the grace of God. She had no child. Thought she had other family that she should have been focused on. But because she was so focused inwardly on her difficulty and her tragedy, she couldn't see the people that were close to her that, was, that were sympathetic to her cause. Her husband loved her. Her perspective was so colored by her personal tragedy that she could not sense the beauty, the good, or the grace which God infuses every believer's life. The Bible says that the grace of God teaches us that we should deny ungodliness in this present world. It's, it's greater power than mercy. Mercy just, mercy covers everything. Mercy is kind of ooey gooey. Thank God that the mercy of God came running. Grace is more of a power. Grace is not just the unmerited favor of God that is willy-nilly thrown out there. The grace of God is something that is strong, powerful, directly connected to the Holy Ghost. 
that gives us strength to overcome difficult situations. And so she couldn't see that grace that was there to help her and guide her. So given that, and given that her life was nothing but one provocation after another, she finally started to reorder her priorities. And she took some, some very, very vital steps. Vital steps. One, I've already mentioned, she brought it to the house of God. She made a commitment that I'm going to dedicate a son that I'm praying for. And I no longer want a child for myself. See, a lot of the decisions we make in life are selfish. They're for us. <laughs> well, we, get, we, can get, boy, we can get pretty strung out with things that we want for ourselves. And she wanted a child for herself, but she came to a determination. I'm going to bring it to God, and I'm going to start praying for things that are not for me, but they're for God. And it changed her whole perspective. When she went into the temple, the tabernacle, and she started praying, she, she started praying about a child she didn't have. But she said, it's going to be for your glory. And so I'm not carrying the weight of this. It's for your glory. You, you carry it. And so she started praying and committing a son to the Lord, not for herself, but she looked beyond her own needs. And she started envisioning the good that meeting her need might do for others. Oh, that's very, very difficult when you get to that point when your children, they're going to make decisions on your own. And man, you'd love to make decisions for them, but they're an adult. They're going to make their own decision. Praise God. And so at some point, you've got you to back off. You've got to let God work through that. Praise God. And you've got to say, God, as long as what they're doing is for your glory and for your honor, not, not insignificant decisions. I'm not talking about insignificant decisions. I'm talking about significant decisions about the kingdom of God. Praise God. Hopefully, you you put and invested enough into your children about how important it is that everything is built around the kingdom of God and not superficial reasons. The kingdom of God, the calling of God. At some point in their life, they're going to rise to the occasion and say, I want to be used of God. I want to step out and trust God. This is scary. This is risky, but I'm going to trust you. And at that point, you got to take your hands off and you got to say, God, this is not about me. This is about your glory. I'm praying so that you would receive glory and move through them and bless them and do work through them. That's a difficult thing, but it's so much easier when you're praying that it be for the glory of God and not for yourself. This was a desperate prayer, a heartfelt one, so much so that her lips moved, even though she was praying in her heart. And Eli, who was not where he needed to be spiritually, and this is another whole message, can you live for God and can you pray and can you reprioritize things in your life when the man of God in your life is not even really there? Or does that become an excuse for you just to do what you want and become apathetic? Not Hannah. Hannah went to the house of God. She, she prayed for a child that she didn't have for the glory of God under the leadership of a man that was, that, that was, he was checked out. His eyes were dim physically and spiritually. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were mistreating worship. 
they were stealing, they were involved in all kinds of corruption and immorality, and that woman had enough guts to pray to God and say, if you give me this child, I'm going to turn him back to the work of God, to a man that wasn't even where he needed to be, but it's going to be for God's glory. I'm not going to use it as an excuse. I'm not checking my family out and walking away from the things of God, pulling them out of stuff because they somehow think that the man of God doesn't measure up. I'm going to give him to you. And you talk about fortitude. We, some of us, we'd have been checked out a long, long time ago. But Hannah, Hannah had, had a grip on something finally that said, I'm going to pray. And God, you're going to bring blessing to it. If it happens, it's going to be for your glory and your goodness. Barrenness in the Bible is an image of lifelessness where God's blessing is absent. Stop and think about it. From the very beginning, when God curses The judgments that are pronounced when Adam and Eve fail, God cursed blessed fertility of his creation. He cursed the ground. The soil is going to produce thorns and thistles. It's going to be laborious. It's going to be a toil to yield food. And human fertility was cursed as childbearing became painful in a life-threatening event. And that image of barrenness becomes one of the strongest images of desolation and rejection. Sarah, Sarah, she feels barren. She feels like God has left her and the promises that God made to Abraham, it's not happening. And she laughs when God tells Abraham, reiterates the promise, and she's behind the curtain and she laughs. Rebecca, Rachel, in the New Testament, it's Elizabeth. In wisdom, Literature, one of the four things that are never satisfied is the barren womb. So there is a, there's a theme all through the scripture. God even pronounces covenant blessing in terms of fertility if people are abiding by his covenant. If they're not abiding by his covenant, then there is barrenness. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse number 1 says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands... I give you today the fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, the fruit of your womb will be cursed and the crops of your land and the calves of your heads, herds and the lambs of your flocks. So there is a, a theme throughout all the scripture of, of barrenness in the scripture as being something that produce lifelessness. Even in Jesus Christ's lineage, this is what's so amazing about Jesus Christ. As he comes to bring blessing, he comes through barrenness. Unexpected births to barren women, starting with Sarah through a wanton woman by the name of Rahab, through the adulterous relationship of Bathsheba and David, and finally, the innocent barrenness of his virgin mother by the name of Mary. God transforms barrenness and frustrated fertility into the fruit of eternal life. Praise God. As the musicians come this morning, bitterness of soul in us praying about in the tabernacle, except for this time she's praying that it would be for God's glory. And there's so much in that one statement. How about you pray about what happened in my life becomes 
something that is to the glory of God. You say, well, you don't know how bad it was or how bad it is. Stop and think about it. The worse that it is, the greater the testimony. The worse that it is, the greater God gets the glory. There's some, <laughs> there's some testimonies in this house that your experience has been inglorious. And yet God brought you out mightily and you're here in the house of God through all of that stuff. And who gets the glory? You? No, because in your experience and in your life situation, you were at the bottom and you didn't have any pride. All you had was brokenness. But when you brought that brokenness to God and you said, God, here it is. God said, you know what? I can, I can produce life in that. And he picked you up and he elevated you and he turned some things around. It wasn't easy. It was hard work. There was time and effort and difficulties. It was wrought with a lot of complexity because it was a provoked, long-standing, multifaceted thing that brought you to the bitterness of soul. But God elevated you, picked you out of that. Praise God. And brought you to the place of, and reflection that his anointing and mercy is operating in your life. Who gets the glory? You don't get the glory. I don't get the glory. But somehow God gets the glory because it's, a, it's only what God can do. Amen. <laughs> and this becomes something I've learned in pastoring. Sometimes there are situations where I don't have any more words to say. There's no possibility I can solve this problem. And so, God, if it's going to be solved, it's going to be because you're miraculous and you do great things and you're going to get the glory. And that's the way that it should be anyway because you're the one that is able to do what others cannot do. Praise God. And so what happened? What happened when she prayed and she shifted her priorities and now she's praying? Whatever she's praying, she's saying... To, to God be the glory, and there is a son that is born, and she takes him, and she delivers him to the house of God, to Eli, and she starts praying in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. She starts rejoicing and praying, saying things like this, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn, that is status, strength, and ability. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Praise God. Sometimes you just got to start praising God and say, God, okay, I'm changing my mentality, my perspective. I know it was bad. It was ugly. It was difficulty. Pull a blanket over it and start praising God and worshiping God. God and magnifying God and praying for God's blessing because when you get there there is blessing when you get there there is favor when you get there there is joy when you get there there is happiness when you get there there is blessing you need to live your life in that realm not walking around with your head down not walking around in bitterness not walking around frustrated but walking around in the grace of God praise God let's stand together Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumble are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh a lie. Somewhere you got to get to the place where you say vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. God is a good keeper of the books. God knows what was really in the hearts of, of individuals during those situations. God really knows my heart and so I'm going to put this in the hand of God.
the Lord that maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raises the poor out of the dust. He lifts the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is a woman that was in the despair of bitterness of soul and yet somehow she came out on the other side with her hands lifted and a worship and praise upon her lips that God is sovereign. You need to rejoice against the enemy. You shouldn't even be here. I don't even care what situation you're in. I don't care if you're even barely here. The fact that you're even here is a miracle. Well, they're not where they need to be. Well, praise God, brother and sister. Thank God they're in the building. You never know when God turns a corner, changes things. We need to be thankful that everybody is in the house of God. We're striving to be the best that we can be. And some are not where we are. But thank God they're still in the house of God. Praise God. When you put your life in the hands of God for the right reason, God elevates the hopeless. When you pray a prayer like Hannah for the glory of God, whether you receive what you expect or not, God turns the barrenness into fruitfulness. Praise God. You need to start praying a prayer of fruitfulness even though you don't have it, you haven't received it. It's not even in your, it's not even in your view. But God, I'm going to give you glory. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to worship you anyhow. There may be accuser of the brethren that comes and provokes me, but God, you're greater. You're great. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I'm going to keep praising you. I'm going to keep worshiping. I'm going to keep magnifying you. Somebody needs to lift up your hands here today in the house of God and say, God, change my mentality, my perspective. Change Change the way I've been looking at things. needs to step out of the pew where they are, walk to the front, lift up your hands and say, I'm going to sing of the goodness of God. I didn't know they were doing that this morning. I didn't know that's what they were going to sing, but it fits into what we're talking about. Praise God. No matter where I am, I'm going to lift my hands and I'm going to sing of the goodness of God. I'm, I'm going to find it somewhere. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to find the small, simple things in life that brings joy. All my life you 